You're listening to TIP. My guest today is Will Thompson. Will is the founder and managing partner at Massive Capital. Will specializes in investing in miners of energy, materials, and heavy industrials. So I wanted to get his take on investing in these areas given the current climate. In this episode, we discuss how to apply probabilistic thinking when approaching investing, Will's structure for the quote-unquote perfect portfolio, why uranium hasn't performed as most hoped for in 2022, how the sustainable energy supply chain is struggling to achieve healthy margins, assessing different types of risk, including political risk, the stock pick that got Will accepted into the prestigious Value Investors Club founded by Joel Greenblatt, and what stock he would pitch today. That and a whole lot more. Will came highly recommended to us by a couple of previous TIP guests, and we are very excited to share this deep dive into multiple areas of interest. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Will Thompson. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And like I said at the intro, I have Will Thompson on the show today. Well, we're happy to have you. Welcome. Trey, thanks for having me on. Well, you came highly recommended by a few different people that we really respect. So we were very excited to have you on. And you have a very kind of niche focus, I would say, that is very topical at the moment. And I imagine a lot of people have a lot of questions about the things that you are an expert in. So we are very excited to dig in. And before we get too deep into the actual asset classes, I wanted to get an overview of your approach and specifically around some thoughts that I think investors like me come across all the time through a lot of famous investors that we study, but we don't get to dig in I think, deep enough to really understand how to make it applicable or practical. One of these things in particular I'm speaking about is thinking in in probabilities. While it sounds so easy to just say, and you can read books on, you know, thinking in bets and and applying some probabilities, I'm not sure enough investors actually do this. So I'm curious if you can walk us through a situation in which it makes sense to apply probabilities to expected cash flow instead of you know, setting some simple static discount rate. Yeah. You mentioned Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. I, I can't claim to think in bets as well as she does. I, I, uh, I ran into her. I mean, she doesn't know who I am, but I, I actually was playing a poker tournament for fun at Foxwoods once and sat down at a table with her and she proceeded to wipe out a whole bunch of people at the table. I, I escaped with my like $5 left, but she wiped out a whole bunch of people at that table. <laughs> But in terms of thinking probabilistically, I mean, as you said, we hear from Charlie Munger, we hear from Warren Buffett, we hear from all the great investors that you should think probabilistically. But how do you actually execute that? And so from our perspective, a lot of our valuation and our approach to investing starts with mining firms. And the reason it starts with mining firms is because that's been the bread and butter of my fund, Massive Capital, sort of investing. And mining firms are kind of nice to approach and value. Because basically, what happens is a management team gives you the entire plan for the next 10, 15, 20 years in a a formal document. And so they give you all the capital allocation, everything. So you can run this beautiful DCF with all the detail you could ever possibly imagine. The challenge, of course, is that who the heck knows what the commodity price is going to be. 
You also don't know if management is going to successfully execute on the plan. So, of course, we have two big questions. Are they going to successfully execute? What is the price of the commodity going to be? But we do have this beautiful sort of net present value equation, if you will, that just sums to a perfect a value. The way we like to approach thinking probabilistically, and we apply this across the board to every company in the portfolio, is by weighting scenarios within a DCF structure and then summing sort of a product sum, if you will, in Excel, those to a single probability weighted value. And so the thought process would be something like this. We don't know where copper is going to be in five years, but we believe there's a 50% chance, subjective probability, 50% chance it's going to be above $5, 25% chance it's going to be 250 and there's a 25% chance it's going to be whatever, $8. We can run our DCF at each of those different price points, and then we can sum that those probability-weighted values up to a final value. Now, what's nice about that is that we can sit down and we know that we don't know what copper is going to be. We also know that there's a spread of possibilities, a spread of futures. And so in that one value now, we've captured a spread of futures that could occur. And so our bet is on that sort of spread of outcome as opposed to a singular answer. The goal is not increased precision. It's more a value that captures the entire strike zone of possibilities as opposed to pinpointing a single point. Now, when you go beyond the mining firms, it starts to get a little more complicated, but in some regards, it becomes even more valuable. If we think about a company that is planning to do a bunch of CapEx and expand their business, whatever the business may be, there are questions. Are they going to successfully execute? Will management successfully execute the project? Maybe yes, maybe no. Will they come in under budget or over budget? Maybe yes, maybe no. Are they going to finance this with debt? You know, There are all these questions. And so when you build out your DCF, for example, you can build out scenarios where you make those changes. No, they're not going to be on time. It's going to be an, a year delay. So all the cash flows now get b- backed up a year. And we think there's 25% chance that they fail to execute properly. Or you can start folding into your scenarios political risk. Maybe they lose a license and now they need to go back to a government and negotiate new permits. And so again, cash flows get backed up. Maybe cash flows get pulled forward. There are all kinds of scenarios to sit down and creatively think about and build into your DCF and then wait. And then in that waiting, you capture you know a much broader spread of the potential of the firm than say picking a single discount rate, a single gold price, or in the case of a project, just sort of assuming management successfully executes. You want to build in sort of an outlook that takes into account all possible futures or at least a, a representative selection of possible futures. At least from our perspective, that sort of approach works quite nicely, obviously, with commodity producers. It works exceedingly well with any project-based company. I can't speak to, say, probably I, I can envision it working well with biotech, only because biotech happens to have a lot of similarities to mining, which is sort of interesting. People don't think about that. But I don't know how well or how to execute it in the case of, say, a Facebook But usually, if you can run a DCF, you can come up with scenarios, and then you can probabilistically weight those scenarios. It's a subjective probability built from your mosaic of information. 
But again, in terms of trying to capture the entirety of the strike zone, we find that that method works quite nicely. And it also forces you to think in terms of odds. You know, again, it's not just is management going to successfully execute this capital allocation plan? It's what are the odds that they're going to execute? And so it forces us to also ask all the questions in terms of odds and probabilities. And that is very helpful as well. Well, you're saying we're applying these probabilities to these outcomes or these scenarios. How does that flow through into actually affecting the free cash flow forecast? For example, you know, you're, you're saying this management team will be 75% successful in executing on this plan. How does that roll down into the free yeah. cash flow number? You want to do this after you've done the free cash flow. So you do your free cash flow and you assume that they fail. Some steel company, they want to build a steel mill. The steel mill is going to be done in 2025, they say. You say, no, it's going to be done in 2026. So you take their plan, what they propose it's going to do, and you back it up a year. You figure out what that DCF value is. And now you take that single number and you apply 25% weighting to it. And you take whatever your other scenario, you apply 50% weighting. And so now you've got... And then you do another with 25%. So now you've got three MPVs and you've weighted each one, multiplied and added, and you've come up with a singular net present value for the entire sort of scenario or portfolio, if you will, of of scenarios. I'm kind of curious with that. Do you have a rule of thumb or some maybe a conservative step that you apply to these outcomes? Because, you know, like you said, you're it's subjective and we're, we're kind of taking our best stab at these things. So do you, you know, what Buffett would do is he'd set a margin of safety, right? So you're like, I think they're going to be 80% successful in this plan, but maybe I'll just count that even further just to be extra conservative. Do you ever do apply any extra conservative steps? I mean, we usually apply again, it usually gets applied at the end into that subjective probability. If we just don't really buy management's claims you know, those bad, the bad scenarios, if you will, are going to end up with a higher weight. But I think internal to the DCF, if you will, usually we don't sort of weight it a first and then a second time because that th- those multiple weightings are compounding things in confusing ways. We're trying very hard. We always try very hard to be quite clear about what questions we're asking in each stage of the investment process, how we're answering them and what's implied or baked into those answers. And so I think applying it at multiple points outside of a discount rate, which we tend to use a, a WAC or a cost of equity, depending on what we're doing, that's more calculated. We don't tend to apply internal weightings to the scenarios. How much weight do you put on the discount cash flow model itself, right? Because I've, I've spoken recently yeah. with Jim O'Shaughnessy and a few others who are kind of saying like these DCF things, you can almost throw them out the window because, you know, sometimes it's garbage in, garbage out. And we're taking our best stabs, but who really knows? But your track record speaks for itself and you've been incredibly successful using this, which makes me re-engage yeah. a little bit with the idea. So I'm curious what you do outside of the DCF or how much it informs the decision process. So we always... And I think, you know, Michael Mubosin, who I know you've had on your show or, or who's been on the channel a couple of times. And, you know, I, I think this comes from him, but he talks about the importance of triangulation, basically, you know, multiple approaches and then trying to actually figure out why some of these multiple approaches tell you different answers. We do do that quite a bit. And it's more because, you know, look, we're always looking for a mispricing. 
and how and why a multiples evaluation or relative pricing of a stock tells you a different answer than the DCF. Like there's something that is revealed in that difference. But what I would say, and I think again, Mubosan would say this, or, or I, I got it from him, and unless I misinterpreted any approach you take you can then back into any other approach. So all the assumptions that, for instance, someone doesn't want to make in a DCF, well, if you assume some PE ratio in the future, you've assumed some earnings, which by definition means that all that comes above earnings has also been assumed, which is going to include you know, various different margin assumptions, various different CapEx assumptions and return on investment assumptions. So all these valuations... I mean, in theory, should produce not only A, the same answer. They don't, but that's that's a separate issue. But they can all backed in, be sort of backed up into alternate methods. And we often do that. So we may run a DCF and then say, oh, well, geez, that DCF means that, you know, it, this company trades at 24 times earnings in, you know, three years from now. Is that particularly likely? Maybe not. Maybe it is. I, I you know, it depends. But what I would say is that we make all the same assumptions. The question is just whether we're making them explicit or not. We tend to favor making them explicit so that we can interrogate them. But there are absolutely times when, you know, for simplicity's sake, we may not run a DCF and we may go a different route knowing that, you know, the, the DCF. So for instance, we're investing in a company called AES, which is utility. AES has got utility operations in the United States. They've got some in Europe. They've got some in South America. They're all over the place. They've got a lot of assets, a lot of things going on. That's a very hard, very messy DCF in any level of detail. And so our DCF for that is a pretty simplistic sort of a starts at EBIT, basically, and goes from there. And one can envision how, you know, how complicated a DCF that starts at EBIT actually is. It's not that difficult, but it doesn't tell us very much. Modeling it out in great detail would be very time consuming and wouldn't help us with the strike zone. It would help us with precision. And so that's not value added in our mind because the precision doesn't, it just, once you've got the strike zone, it doesn't add much value. So I think DCF is important. I think you want to triangulate by trying multiple different approaches and seeing what kind of answers it produces. And you should be able to tell a story that runs through all the answers, in my opinion, and explains the differences between those answers as a result of how you've calculated. Yeah, there's that Keynes quote, right? About it's better to be directionally or roughly right than precisely wrong. <laughs> and so we are we are strong believers in getting the right direction. And for those curious about this kind of thing, we do have a probability function on our TIP finance tool, which you can go check out on our website. It's got three probability bands that you can apply to the free cash flow. So you can kind of get to play around with this on some of the stocks you love and and get a feel for it. So, Will, I'm kind of curious, sticking on the subject of just general investing, I've seen you write about this idea of putting together a perfect portfolio. And I think we're all in the pursuit of that, right? Whether we ever achieve it or not is a different story. But how would you think about starting to construct what you would call a perfect portfolio? Yeah, so we, th this idea of a perfect portfolio actually came as a result of some challenges we had in, in the fourth quarter of 2018. We had a drawdown. You know, one quarter of about 20% as a result of a couple of mistakes we made in portfolio construction. So we liked the positions, but a couple of the positions that went wrong, one of which was Diamond Offshore, another of which was Tiki Offshore, and then a final one was Graph Tech. All three of them sort of went wrong at the same time in that quarter. There are a couple of different lessons from each of them that are different. 
but we had allowed each position to grow quite large. We had at the time been running a portfolio of 10 long positions and a mess of short positions without any real sort of boundaries around what position sizing would be, without any real thought process in terms of how to size positions. We were just doing it based on our own conviction, without any real understanding or ability to wrap our hands around what that conviction was and how to measure it versus sort of conviction in other positions. And so that challenge of understanding conviction proved a hurdle that we just couldn't figure out how to overcome. How do we measure our own conviction such that we can size positions correctly? What we came up with and what we use, we apply this roughly. We don't stick to it exactly as if it's a rule, but we said, okay, how much time do we have in the day? This is my partner and I were doing, how much time do we have in the day to do research? How many positions can we handle? How much volatility in those positions can we handle while remaining even keel? so that we don't let the behavioral side of things impact what we're doing. And what kind of returns are we looking for? And so for us, we came to, we're looking for a net of fees return of 12% for our investors, something they should be willing to pay for. We wanted to tamp down a little bit on the volatility that we had experienced in that fourth quarter. That 20, 25% drawdown for us was fine for me and my personal account, but a lot of investors would have trouble stomaching that. So we expanded the number of positions. And so we came to 16 positions on the long side, all starting at 6% and 16 positions on the short side, starting at 3%. Now, the idea of the perfect portfolio is then to take it one step further and say, what is the individual perfect position within that portfolio look like? Because once you establish what that individual perfect position in the portfolio looks like, you can start to say, how does this new position I'm looking at stack up against that? So for us, in the case of mining firms, let's say, we said, okay, in order for something to be a 6% mining position, we need to be able to get at least 100 plus percent return over the next three years. Okay, So now we can immediately say, oh, well, this company is not going to give us that. And we can say, benchmark it against the perfection, which doesn't really exist. And the result is, well, most the most we could allocate to this within the context of this perfect portfolio and this perfect position is three or four percent. And we're not going to take a three or four percent position. It's gotta it's gotta at least be six percent, right? And then we can look at something else and it, it maybe it's two hundred percent return. Okay, well that stacks up really well against a hundred percent return and the various different risk criteria. And so the perfect portfolio gives you this fictitious sort of idea that lets you benchmark your conviction against. And we at least have found it quite useful because position sizing is so very important and it is so very hard to do well. And when to add to positions that have drawn down is such a difficult challenge. And a lot of it has to, again, do with how do you measure your own conviction in this position? And it just, it's very hard. So with the perfect portfolio idea, you now have something you can benchmark against. That's fascinating. It's super, super helpful. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. 
Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So I believe that you would describe yourself as a value investor, much like Warren Buffett, for example. However, instead of a buy and hold forever strategy like Buffett, you are aiming to buy and hold for only about three to five years with a focus on these cyclical stocks. So I'm curious, what is a profile, let's say, of a stock that would appeal to you? Within the mining industry, for example, which is what we're best known for, we look for opportunities to underwrite operations and due diligence as the catalyst for the company and its its re-rate or its move higher. So we look for companies that are not producing commodities, first of all, because once you become a commodity producer, you tend to trade with the commodity. And so that becomes an opportunity where your edge in owning that stock is going to be in your forecast of the commodity price. We're not really very good at forecasting commodities. I don't really think anyone is, but we don't want to make a bet where our edge has to be in the forecasting of the commodity price. So we look for junior miners that are starting to turn on a mine in the next two, three, five years. So that's where a lot of the three to five years comes from. Within industrials though, and and my firm, Mass Capital, invests in materials, energy, and industrials, what we call the real asset ecosystem, because all these companies exist on sort of a, their own individual value chains, if you will, that run through each of those sectors. The industrials, we look more for contracted cash flows, niche products, so and sometimes moats. So I'd say within industrials, it's much more sort of Buffett-style value, if you will. And then energy runs the gambit. We tend to take more of a barbell approach with energy where we do actually look for some producers. And part of that has to do with the volatility of the underlying commodity versus, say, in mining. So you look at something like oil. Oil is about twice as volatile as copper is over any given period. And so if you think about your individual position and you say, how much commodity price risk can I stomach? Well, you have to stomach a lot with any oil company. And so you probably want to decrease your operational risk. And so that's what drives us 
to sort of invest more in established producers on the oil side. Whereas with, with mining firms, the commodity price volatility isn't as severe in our opinion. And so we can afford to tolerate more of it. And so we can, we can afford to, to or so it's not as severe. And so we can afford to handle more operational risk. So it, it all sort of depends on what we're, we're looking for. But most importantly, I would say everything is sort of project related. There's a specific project, there's a specific management plan, and these plans all tend to resolve themselves in three to five years. And so that within this real asset ecosystem, that's sort of why we look for investments to mature in that time frame and get in and get out. Now, you'd sort of mentioned Warren Buffett and this idea of buy and hold forever. I'm going to push back on that because I don't think Warren... I mean, he may have said it. I don't remember. He said a lot. But I don't think anyone actually buys something to hold forever. And it's not clear to me that that concept even necessarily makes sense. And even more so if there's no capital return component to the company. So if you are a minority shareholder who only has capital appreciation as your return mechanism, at some point, you don't want to hold the company anymore. Not all companies can continue to grow returns on invested cash flow and margins and free cash flow. Nobody can grow it forever. At some point, your, you know, again, what someone like Michael Mubosin would call your competitive advantage period or whatever you want to call it is going to fade and you're going to revert to doing what everybody else in the industry does. And so this idea of holding something forever, I'm not sure if it plays out that way. And I think, I think actually, if, and, and I believe Warren Buffett has said this, you know, if you ask him about Coca Cola, I think he said at some point recently that he wished he had sold Coca Cola at some point. Coca Cola is often tried out as the buy and hold forever example, right? Has that, that moat that just can't be beat because everybody knows the symbol, the, the little Coca Cola circle. But even then, at some point, it was a sap. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that anything really exists that you want to hold forever. I, I think we're all, in some regards, we're all trading prices just on very different timelines. Someone will fact check me on this, but I think his dividend payments annually are more than what he actually even paid for Coca-Cola at this point. Okay, it's, well, so maybe maybe he insane. wasn't talking about Coca-Cola when I, he said that. I could be um, wrong, but I yeah, but I know I trust that he might have said it though. But it's just a uh, it's an interesting example yeah. of how buy and hold might actually pay off, even if you know you're subconsciously you're thinking you don't want to do it. Yeah, I mean, if if you can get a dividend that meets your hurdle, whatever it may be, for whatever reason, and you know, then you know maybe you do want to hold it forever. But it, that whether you want to hold it or not very much hinges there on how the capital return is going to accrue to you. Is it literally a capital return from the company or is it just capital appreciation? Because those two things act differently and you as an investor should respond differently. You've taken his ownership mindset. I feel like you've taken it so far in a way that it's kind of circled back around. And what I mean is that you've been writing about stocks and calling them situational derivatives, essentially viewing a stock as a representative piece of paper, if I'm understanding this correctly, and maybe not so much like a, an actual stake in the company, the way maybe Buffett would describe it. You know, the challenge with looking at other investors, and this would apply to any of your listeners, you know, listening to what I have to say too, is that we all have constraints that preclude us from doing different things. And we all have incentives that impel us to do different things. And understanding the different constraints and incentives of famous investors like Warren Buffett or Howard Marks or Seth Klarman or whoever it may be is quite difficult. 
What I would say is that, again, sitting here as someone who almost is always a minority, I don't think I've ever been a strategic investor in anything I've touched. And I think most investors are always a minority. Your return is not a return from owning the stock. Your return comes from either dividends or capital appreciation. And capital appreciation isn't solely a function of value. If we look at the price of a stock, we can sort of decompose it into fundamental value and then maybe macroeconomic issues and then sentiment. We could continue to divide those further. And so the question is, why is there a mispricing and what is going to prompt that mispricing to close? And in our case, it's a three to five year period that we're looking for something, some mispricing to close for some particular reason. And that reason tends to be derived from fundamentals. And those fundamentals can only be assessed from the perspective of an owner operator. But you as a shareholder can't sit back and think of yourself as an owner operator because you are not an owner operator, nor is your return going to accrue to you as a result of owner operator. It's going to accrue to you for other reasons, especially if there's no dividend. And sometimes fundamental value is what drives it. But as we've seen in these markets, especially with changes in market structure associated with ETFs, where you have just a lot of price agnostic buying, it may not be value or fundamentals or owner operator issues that produce the return. So you take something like, we'll take a railroad because Warren's got obviously SF. You take a railroad like UNP or CSX and you look at who owns it and you look at who's buying it. And the answer of who owns it and who buys it is passive. People buying it automatically without any consideration for value whatsoever. So the movement on that price not its value, its price, which is what you own. You own the price. And admittedly, the price entitles you to some theoretical ownership, but try to exercise it, right? Try show up at the meeting and say, you'd like to make some changes. You're not going to get very far. So, you know, those other variables become critical to interrogate. Understanding why there is a mispricing and how the mispricing is going to close becomes the most critical question, as opposed to thinking like an owner. It's in some regards a second step, though that you can only do after you assess the company as if you're an owner. You don't want to buy something that you yourself wouldn't want to own and operate. Warren Buffett and I are like on the same page in that regard. But at the same time, why we will realize a return in the stock, which has more than just fundamental value at play, especially these days with the way the market and market action has changed, becomes critical. And answering that question, what is the mispricing and how is it going to close becomes critical as opposed to just operator owner sort of viewpoint. Got it. Very interesting. So let's dive into a couple of actual asset classes and materials. One in particular I wanted to start with is uranium because I've I've interviewed a number of people this year, especially earlier in the year, and uranium was being hyped up quite a bit. A lot of people saying it was very asymmetric. Lynn Alden, who we know and love, was pretty bullish on it, I, I believe, earlier in the year. I interviewed Cuppy, who put it, I think, as one of his top positions. But it hasn't really panned out so far, I think, like many had hoped. So I'm curious if you have an opinion on, on where investors may have gone wrong and what the issues might be that are holding uranium back. Yeah. So uranium is actually a good example for this sort of entire conversation, if you will. So I've watched uranium and made one, inve one investment in my fund in, in a company called Kaz Adam Prom when it IPO'd in 2018, 2019, blanking, blanking on exactly which year. But so I've watched uranium for 10 to 12 years. 
It's the only time I've done anything. I was just recently. We bought it at 13-ish. We exited at 40-ish. And that was last year. The reason I watched it and did nothing was because when one looked at the industry, one saw two different buckets. There was Cameco and Kazadimprom producers. And then there were juniors. Now, juniors, as I've said, we tend to like junior miners. The difference, though, is that these juniors all had an asset on their balance sheet that had theoretical value, but they were not going to monetize it or attempt to monetize it until uranium prices had already crossed 65, thereabouts. That that seems to be the price at which a lot of these firms like NextGen, which has the aero deposit in the Athabasca Basin in Canada, or any of these other sort of firms up there in that region, or there are several in, in Africa. $65 uranium seems like the price that they're going to do it at. So if you buy any of those juniors, doesn't matter what they've got, doesn't matter what they're doing, your bet is that the price of uranium is going up. It's not a bad bet. I don't disagree with it, but I don't know how long it's going to take, and I don't know how high it's going to go. All I know is where I'm starting at. That's a hard equation, if you will, both to figure out what position to take, what position size to apply, how long to give it before it works out or doesn't work out. It's quite challenging. And so I think that this year, what's happened is that uranium prices have improved, but they haven't improved enough for any of these juniors to say, yeah, we're going to start to build a mine. And so none of the very few of the juniors have made that really strong move. They've made some initial small moves. Cameco's made a reasonable move, but they're a producer, so they benefit right off the bat. When we invested in Kazadimprom, the reason we invested in Kazadimprom was not because we thought uranium was going to rise. We had a thought that it might, but we didn't really have strong feelings about it, to be perfectly frank. What we had strong feelings about was that on a discounted cash flow across a various, a various number of scenarios, that the IPO price was at best half of what the company was worth at current uranium prices. And meanwhile, while we waited for it to appreciate, hopefully, they were going to pay us, I think the dividend started at 7 or 8%. So a very healthy dividend. So we didn't need uranium prices to move at all. I don't want to make a bet on a commodity producer where everything hinges on the, ura- on the commodity price moving. If that is the hinge upon which a bet is going to play out, then I don't really think that's a great bet to make unless you are an expert at commodity prices. But if you're an expert at commodity prices, my question would be, why aren't you expressing your opinion in futures, right? There are cash settled uranium futures. I don't know how that market trades, but if you're really predicting commodity prices and that's the game you're in, why execute it via equity? Why not execute it via commodity futures? So I think that uranium, at least this year, hasn't panned out because it's all just a bet on the movement and the price of uranium. And it's a highly opaque market. I think, you know, if you had someone, the real experts on the secondary market and the contracting cycles for utilities are Segra Capital, Adam Rodman and Arthur Hyde. I think they tell you it's highly opaque and that the utility contracting is only just getting started. So a really strong move in uranium prices has yet to occur because that's really yet to feed back into the market. And when that does occur is anyone's guess. There's a lot of supply sitting on the sidelines in various different places that are hidden out of sight. The market doesn't clear, but somehow everyone still gets the uranium they need. So, you know, this is a highly opaque market that's very hard to read. And so reading turning points in it are going to be really difficult. So I'm not sure why you'd want to just bet that prices are going up, which is essentially what the bet is. Prices are just going to go up. They have to. Really? Why? 
I was going to jump in there and say it kind of ties into the, I guess the thesis is around climate change to a degree where there has been this shortage in a number of cases, oil, et cetera, from the wars going on. And I think there is a new appreciation perhaps on nuclear. You, you see China investing in 150 new reactors, I think over the next 15 or so years. And so I think a lot of people are thinking, okay, the uranium supply, it's going to need to increase right, to keep up with some of this demand that's maybe coming onto the market. But I'm curious if that's enough of a thesis right, for uranium in particular. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't remember... The difference when we own Kaz Adam Prom, we had our own supply curve that we ran in house. And it's pretty easy for uranium because there just aren't that many mines, right? The, you know, oftentimes these, these cost curves are hard to put together because there are a lot of, a lot of inputs. Uranium, there aren't that many mines. So it's not that hard to put together the cost curve. You put together the cost curve, the market never clears. There is not enough uranium produced to meet demand. It's made up in this secondary market, which has got uranium from all sorts of different places. So. The idea that a growth in demand is going to spur price movement within the context of that cost curve does make sense. No doubt about it. But again, we come back to this question of timing and we come back to this question of, well, again, mostly just as sort of a question of timing. The market can stay irrational far longer than we can all stay solvent. And so, you know, we, we at least really want to make bets where we have an understanding of how long we're going to be involved in this for and what our return profile looks like. Let's say, because the story with uranium has been the same for 10 years, that basically what you said is that the supply demand doesn't balance and that there's more demand than there is supply. That's the same story that's been for 10 years. All you've added in is further growth, which is fine. But if you had bought it 10 years ago, you'd still be waiting now. Now, if you know what your return profile looks like, that 10-year wait is perfectly acceptable, right? Like if you know that you're going to somehow get out of that with a Kager of 14, 15, 20, whatever it is you demand, waiting 10 years is fine. Or at least if you have some inkling of it. But you again, you don't know how high it's going to go. And not only do you not know how high uranium is going to go, but you're actually dealing in a derivative of uranium. You're dealing in a company. You don't know how high it's going to go and you don't know how long it's going to take. How much do you allocate to that? And if you've got multiple bets like that in your portfolio, how do you think through that? How do you allocate to multiple bets like that across a portfolio? It becomes quite hard and quite challenging to effectively manage a portfolio comprised of that kind of bet, at least in our opinion. Very interesting. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on the opportunities that there might be with the sustainable energy future, knowing that you know a lot of your investments are kind of counter to, to this thesis to a degree. But I'm curious, what would be the inhibitors for the US to achieve energy independence through sustainable efforts, in your opinion, that's presenting opportunities for folks like you? Well, so first, I think it's important to clarify, we believe in climate change. We believe the science is quite sound. I don't think there's a lot to argue about with the science. Now, what is open is how do we address this problem? Now, we seem to have decided upon somehow a almost singular solution. And the singular solution is wind, solar, and EVs. Now, let's put aside the fact that if we make all those changes, change the way we generate electricity and change automobiles, we only really address, we don't even address half the emissions problem. So let's put aside the fact that that solution doesn't address all the problems. I think more importantly, the fact that those solutions only address 40-ish percent of the problem, how you create that solution, where you get the copper from for the EVs, where you get the polysilicon for the solar panels, 
where you get all the various inputs becomes a significant challenge, not only environmentally, but economically. And then you layer on top of that, the fact that in order to make a transition using those tools, you really need to be quite clever and thoughtful about your sequencing. And this is what we're seeing or where we're seeing issues in Europe at the moment. Sure, there are parts of economies and different places that can be run on renewables. But in order to get there, everyone around them has an impact. And that sequence of how you phase out hydrocarbon powers becomes critical. And it's a very subtle game that you have to play because, of course, power, for example, always needs to balance. Supply and demand always need to be exact. Otherwise, we run into an issue collapsing the grid. So that solution set not only falls short of addressing the entirety of the challenge, but also creates all kinds of challenges of its own that we needed to start to address probably 15 years ago or 20 years ago. If we want to hit this target of 2050, copper mine, if you discover a copper asset today, you will be lucky to turn that mine on in 15 years. So the copper that we need in 2030, someone needed to figure out where it was in 2015. Now, that investment, those investments in mining that will facilitate this have not occurred. So you've got all these bottlenecks that are building up. On top of that, within renewables in particular, wind and solar, you have a nasty issue where everyone is laser focused on driving the cost of electricity down, yet the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers for wind and solar, all mostly don't make money. Vestas has a, a net income margin of 5%, 4%. Sometimes it goes negative. Siemens Gamesa, which we own a small piece of via our investment in Siemens Energy, is a basket case. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare. The Chinese, who knows what's going on with wind, their wind turbine manufacturers. They make polysilicon quite cheaply that we all use. But despite the fact that they make polysilicon from subsidized coal, their polysilicon producers mostly don't make, make any money either. So there are a lot of opportunities on the short side because there's a lot of enthusiasm about these things that the valuations don't justify. There's a lot of opportunity on the long side, but one has to keep in mind what the timeline is going to be and what is going to happen in the meantime. So I am a strong believer that wind and solar have a time and place. Wind in the North Sea makes all the sense in the world. It's quite profitable. Solar in Arizona makes all the sense in the world and can be quite profitable. So the question is, can you buy some of these OEMs and some of these actual operators at prices now or in the near term that allow you to hold it for probably the five to 10 year period it's going to take before this sort of cycle here where we're in quite a messy way trying to figure out the energy system works itself out. And so if you want to buy energy now and hold for a while, there are opportunities in the OEMs. If you want to buy and hold for return, sort of a capital return via a dividend or something like that, there are some operators of wind and natural resources or wind and solar that play quite nicely in a lot of portfolios. The other opportunities are, of course, in the assets that people have sort of given up on. Oil and natural gas being the most obvious one, but we would suggest that oil and natural gas is quite tricky at the current prices. So we got out of most of our oil and natural gas in March and April of this year and have yet to go back in. And the challenge from our perspective is that everything looks to be priced 
That's sort of like a perfect $65, $70 barrel of oil right now. And we can't come up with that scenario, those scenarios, those probability weighted scenarios where we're dropping, let's say, a $40 oil case, right? So sure, oil and natural gas supply and demand are out of whack, but oil has fallen as much as 40 or 50%, something like eight times over the last decade. I'd have to go back and look at the actual math. That it could happen again is perfectly reasonable. And to just dismiss that case, we think is short-sighted. And of course, when you drop in a you know 25% chance or something or a 10% chance of $40 barrel of oil, your DCFs on a lot of oil companies, you know, the price goes down quite dramatically. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. That March-April timeframe is very interesting to me because that's right around the time I believe Buffett was going heavy-handed on Occidental. I think I believe he was purchasing a lot of that position from Carl Icahn. So perhaps you're more in the Carl Icahn camp than the Buffett camp in this in this particular example. I'm kind of curious about the the other materials you mentioned: copper. A lot of people have had this thesis around getting into battery materials, lithium and some other metals. Elon recently was stating that lithium is kind of all over the world, right? And so yeah. it's it's pretty abundant. And the detriment to the environment on mining these materials might, I don't know if it offsets the benefits, but it's certainly a consideration. So what is your opinion on those metals in particular and, and how you weigh it against the overall net benefit of it? So we think batteries definitely have some life. These are definitely going to happen and utility scale storage of some kind is definitely going to happen. We are not 100% certain what chemistry is going to work. So lithium batteries have lots of different chemistries. Some of them are nickel-based, some of them are iron-based. All of these different chemistries have different qualities around them. Some make them ideal for utility scale storage. Some make them ideal for a car. And different chemistries require different metals to be mined. The Negative environmental impact of mining basically can't be mitigated. You either want to mine stuff or you don't. Either way, you're digging a giant hole in the ground, pulling up a lot of stuff, and then more importantly, from an environmental perspective, processing it. That processing component is really where the sort of negative environmental impact for mining comes from. You know, look, you, you dig a big open pit, that creates a scar. But once that pit is then filled back in, Within a decade or so, you can't even tell it was there. Unless it was right in the middle of the rainforest in Brazil, it's going to take a little longer. But most of the time, you can't. It's the processing element that's quite nasty. And so we spend a lot of time focused on looking at at different mining firms that are developing alternative processing methodologies or are just very sort of conscious of how they're processing the metal and the material. And I think that that is going to become increasingly important going forward. What I would also say is that I think someone like Elon Musk is spot on when he says a lot of these metals, there is no, the battery metals for some of them, specifically lithium, there is no shortage of lithium. What there is a shortage of is A, operating mines. And this goes back to the sequencing issue, right? Turning on a lithium asset requires five to 10 years, depending on what kind of asset it is. So there's that sequencing issue. You know, we've primed the pump, if you will, for EVs. Has that also primed the pump for mining? It hasn't. So there are dislocations that are occurring through the value chain. But this also speaks to the importance of viewing these industries within, again, this concept of a real asset ecosystem, because mining it is not where it ends. You mine it, you process it, you put it into a new sort of form, then they put it into a battery cell, then the cell goes into a pack and the pack goes into a car. And so along each of these, each step, there is a different company involved. 
and a different opportunity. And those opportunities occur at different points in the economic cycle. So we are invested presently in a company called Lithium Americas. Lithium Americas is producing lithium from a mine in South America called Kachari, and they're building an asset called Thacker Pass in Nevada. This is all very interesting, great stuff. They're bringing on lithium. They're going to go from being a no one to a major in the industry in about 10 years. Right. By about 20, I don't know, 28, 2030, second half of this decade, we don't think that the opportunity is going to be in lithium mining. It's going to be in processing and it's going to be in sort of that second step, basically the chemical step, if you will, of the battery industry where you turn a raw material into a useful material because no one you know, you don't pull out of the ground 99.9% pure battery grade lithium. You pull a concentrate out of the ground. And so that processing step is where the opportunity is going to lie. And so that's why we think it's really important to, you know, think about these things in terms of cycles and value chains. Because once you learn stuff about batteries and mining, you know, that information and knowledge, you don't want to lose it. You want to compound on it. And that means shifting around on the value chain. So there are a lot of metals that are going to be important in the battery transition, but picking your spots and where in that value chain you would choose to invest, depending on where we are in the cycle is going to be critical. Fascinating. Now I've heard you say that mining companies are easy to value. Why do you hold that opinion? I'm I'm curious what some considerations are might be when valuing a mining company. So I guess probably want to soften that statement a little bit. Nothing is easy to value, but I think one would say that from a a technical perspective, mines tend to be relatively straightforward. And that has to do with the fact that mining companies are all project companies. And that project, due to historical frauds, requires the publication of your plan. So there were a lot of frauds back in the day. And still, to this day, there are frauds in the mining industry, just like any other industry. But uh, there was a, the example that, that's most well-known is Briax where the mining firm actually took their assays, took their samples to get assay, determine how much gold was in them. And on the route to the, the place where the assay was going to occur, they, they sprinkled some extra gold in there, basically boosting the grade. As a result of that, there's now, in the case of Canada, a document that must be published called a 43101. South America, it's called something else. In Australia, it's called something else. And in the United States, we've done nothing but anyone, any mining firm operating in the United States basically abides by Canadian rules. In that document, the entire plan for the mine is laid out with all the assumptions management has made. And so oftentimes, management actually hands you a pre-done DCF. Now, it's their assumptions. The DCF is done. So all you need to do is assess, you know, is management viable? Do you really think that they can execute on this operation. So basically what they've done is they've taken all the quantitative work out and you're left with just the qualitative work. Now, admittedly, the qualitative work is actually the hardest component. So saying valuing a mine is easy is a bit of a misnomer, but they've done a, a lot of the heavy lifting for you in some regards. And so we we like that. We appreciate that because we basically get this document that says, this is what, what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years in the most detail you could possibly imagine. And then you get to to sort of work with that data. It'd be as if Facebook had given you the entire plan for the metaverse. That would be the sort of equivalent. So that makes mining sort of easier to approach. But on the qualitative side, you want to think about things like permitting risk 
and funding risk. Those would be sort of the two first issues we think about when we look at a pre-production mine. Whether you are a developer or a producer matters. If you're a producer, someone who's already producing gold, copper, et cetera, odds are you're mostly going to trade with the commodity price. So about once every five to 10 years, we would say that you can buy a company like that. And usually that occurs when you know the commodity is so bombed out that nobody's interested. So for example, we bought Barrick Gold at $10 a share because everyone was like, Barrick might go bankrupt, da, 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 da. but you do the DCF and that's just not the case. Operational diversification can be quite important for mining firms. It determines how much political risk you have to accept or not. Geographical exposure is, is tied in there. Liquidity risk is a big risk for mining firms. Most of your listeners, presumably, and me most of the time as a smaller fund, don't have to worry about the liquidity risk as much. We don't deal in anything less than 200 million, but there are definitely junior miners that get quite small and, and trade basically by appointment only. So I think those important variables to consider again, you know, sort of liquidity risk, geographic exposure, operational diversification, producer versus developer, funding, permitting, those would be the big risks. Note that geology was not one of those risks. Now, geology is a risk, but if you're dealing in developers, that a lot of that geological risk has already been dealt with and taken care of and validated. So your job is then to assess whether the validation was accurate. And that oftentimes is a question of who did the sort of audit and who's committing capital to the project can tell you a lot about the geology. But we ourselves are not geologists. Geology is important, but it doesn't need to be the be all and end all only variable, especially when considering either a developer or a producer. If you're looking at pre-production, pre-development, it's a whole nother story, but there's this stage in mining firms. And this is why I said they're often like biotech firms, where when a biotech firm first discovers a drug, you get this big pop. And then everyone's like, oh, we got to go through the FDA pipeline, sell us down. Of course, while it's in that pipeline, that FDA pipeline, it's technically de-risking. Oftentimes, it's de-risking and trading down. That's a really great scenario. And then they get approved and it pops. Mining firm is the same way. You got that same curve. There's a sweet spot right here where you're de-risking and trading down or trading sideways. That's where you want to be. So it's more about finding the right companies than necessarily having an understanding that copper is going to five or gold's going to 2000 or whatever. So you mentioned the qualitative is the hardest piece of the diligence and finding the right company is the hardest. And if, as I understand it, and I don't know if you're still invested in this, but you invested in a tin mine in the Congo. So all kinds of questions come up from that. For one, how do you find a business like that? That's so off the beaten path. And then going to those risks you highlighted, how critical is it to be boots on the ground in the area of these mines to actually inform yourselves of those risks and how severe they might be? So you're referring to a company called Alphamin. We are still invested in Alphamin. Took a little off the table at one point, so we don't have our full position on, but we are still invested in it. Alphamin is the highest grade tin mine in the world. And tin is a critical metal for all electronics. It's basically, the, they, they talk about it as the glue that keeps electronics together. You flip over, say, a motherboard and you see all those little dots. Those are all tin. Tin is also important in various different other mostly electric related sort of things, robots, the grid, etc. We came across that basically we follow a lot of niche metals and we just sort of watch the metals. And when interesting things happen in niche metals, we start looking at the different companies. 
And oftentimes for niche metals like tin, there just aren't that many businesses. And so that, in some regards, makes our job a little easier. What also makes our job easier in the case of some of these niche metals and tin sort of straddles the line because, you know, I may say tin to you and you may say, wow, that sounds really niche. But tin actually trades on the LME. It's actually a major metal in the grand scheme of things, especially when compared to, say, the volume of, you know, weird rare earth metals that are sometimes needed. So, but when interesting things start to happen in the commodity price of these niche metals that we track, we start to look for companies. And there are very few mines oftentimes. And so that makes the job of understanding the entire universe much easier. In regards to the boots on the ground, I would say we don't get to every mine we invest in, but we try to. Sometimes we get to the mine and we learn something that's really valuable and really important. Sometimes though, you don't learn much that's critical to the investment. You always learn a lot about mining that it, again, informs that mosaic of understanding. But you don't always learn a lot necessarily that impacts the investment itself. When you do, though, it's usually critical. And the examples I would give would be, I mean, something like Alphamin, learning about and, and following the trail, if you will, of the tin, the route out of country in Africa learned a lot about the process and whether it was going to be viable going forward. You know, it could be done in a four-wheel drive vehicle. The answer is it was yes. And so it could be done also with a semi-truck. Yes. Did it go through war zones? In the case of, of Alphamin, it's in the DRC. It's in what's called the Lakes region, which is just sort of a notorious region for a lot of insurgencies and terrorists and things of that nature. So what's the environment around the mine like? specifically in regards to security, actually going to site and seeing, okay, look, we're in the middle of the jungle. There's nobody around. There's no one around for hundreds of miles. You know, Maybe a security issue might come up, but security issue is going to come up in the same way it could come up anywhere that's hundreds of miles from the nearest civilization. So you learn a lot about risks that in some regards are risks you either have to choose to accept or not. You don't learn as much about, you know, say, I don't know, the finances and stuff like that in the business. So it's quite critical in emerging and developing markets to go see the asset. It's quite critical to spend a lot of time with management. That's actually what I derive the most value from. When I go to these sites, you're always with management. And so you get to spend like three or four days just chatting with management. How often do you really get to do that? Just, just endless conversations about not only the business, but you know, what's your family life? You, you got kids, great. You got kids, where you know, where they go to school? What, what, what do you do with them? You, you know, you you learn about them as people. And mining is, you know, you're you're very much betting jockeys quite frequently. And so, getting that time is probably the most value added component. I would suggest that anyone who's interested in junior mining, you know, you you can call up these mining firms. They have trips. You'll have to pay for it. But you know, you're making an investment. It might be worth the additional cost of that research. It's super interesting. One other fun fact I wanted to throw out before we run out of time here was that you're a longstanding member of the Value Investors Club, and you know that was founded by Joel Greenblatt, who we've had on the show a couple of times. I've been an outside observer of that club, and and it's very prestigious. I'm kind of curious if you could share what stock got you in the door. Yeah, so it's kind of amusing. I think it's amusing. I think I submitted three or four, made three or four ideas before the idea I submitted got picked. I think every idea I submitted before made money. The one I submitted that they were like, okay, yep, you're good, definitely was a loser. So it's just kind of an amusing story. But 
I submitted uh, a couple years ago, GraphTech. GraphTech still exists. Still a publicly traded company. Ticker symbol is EAF on the NYSE. GraphTech makes graphite electrodes for the EAF, electric arc furnace steel industry. Now, at the time of the investment, they had just gone... Not, I, I don't know when the idea... I submitted the idea versus when I made the investment. I don't remember the timeline on that. But when we made the investment, the company had just recently gone public again. They'd filed for bankruptcy. They'd been taken out of bankruptcy and bought up by Brookfield Asset Management. And we invested at the time of the IPO. They had squared away what we thought were great long-term contracts at very high prices for their electrodes. And we thought that they were going to be able to continue those contracts. And and what turned out to be the case was twofold. One, they couldn't continue the contracts. They they didn't manage to re-sign contracts at high prices. And two, we ended up being a minority for whom a majority shareholder, Brookfield, could care less about. And the result was that every time the stock went up, Brookfield sold down their position. So we went into this thinking we had a partner in Brookfield. That was a big mistake. We thought private equity firm who said that we want to buy and we want to be owner operators of this business. We're in this for the long haul. Our incentives were not aligned in any way whatsoever. And every time the stock went up, it got bat down again by them issuing stock. And every time they bought back stock, they did a basically a bought deal with Brookfield. And so the stock just never moved. And it turned into a bit of a, a disastrous investment. I think we were down 30% in it or something when we, by the time we got out. Second run-in with Brookfield, we'll never touch anything Brookfield does again. Interesting. Now, I might be reaching here, but if you were submitting to the Value Investors Club today, what would be your stock pick? Oh, let's see. That's interesting. Well, we got a couple of interesting things in our portfolio at the moment, in my opinion. We have a company called PIF. A ticker symbol is PIF, P-I-F, trades in Canada. It's called Polaris. They just changed the name, so I don't remember what they just changed the name to, but originally it was Polaris Infrastructure. They do, they run, operate renewable assets in South America exclusively. Run of River Hydro, a little solar, and a little wind. It's probably a double from here, I think. Relatively low risk. The assets are mostly on the ground operating assets already. They're doing a little bit of development and growth, but it's paid for, funded, permitted, and the offtakes are signed. So, you know, that's a nice situation to be in as an independent power producer. Plus, South America lends itself quite nicely to renewables. Not only do they have a lot of wind, water, and sun, but given the geography of South America, it doesn't necessarily lend itself as well to the sort of hub and spoke electrical system that we have in the United States, where we have giant power plants that can power, you know, multiple cities. The geography is quite, everyone is quite separated and, and they're separated by mountains and rainforests and whatnot. And so building a, a, a grid through that is quite hard. So PIF operates in this sort of segment of assets that are anywhere from 10 megawatts to sort of like 300 megawatts which is very small, but ideal for a sort of small communities of you know, 10, 15, 20, 100,000 people. So it works quite, quite nicely in South America. That would be an interesting one to submit. It's a little bit of political risk. 
because they're in Nicaragua and they're, they've got exposure in the Dominican Republic and Ecuador and stuff. But it is, it's an interesting opportunity, I think, and a great platform that the management team is building that they can continue to add to for the long term. So this is an example of a company where, you know, we look for three to five years, but every year we reassess and every year that fifth year gets pushed out again, right? It, it, we keep rolling our timeline. So when we say three to five, just as an aside, you know, that's not a hard and fast thing. We reassess our timelines every year and some investments we end up holding. You know, we recently exited an investment after seven years. It's because every year we reassessed and every year we thought there was more. Well, this has been so fun. I really appreciate you sharing so many cool ideas and just a, a look inside a very fascinating investing strategy. So I would love to do this again. And before I let you go, I want to make sure people can find out more about you. So if you have any handoffs to a website or any other resources you want to share, go ahead and let the audience know. So we publish a lot. We think our research is basically our marketing material. So we publish basically all of it. It can mostly be found on our website, which is www.massifcap.com, M-A-S-S-I-F-C-A-P.com. And then I'm on Twitter at WMThompson22. I tweet a reasonable amount and I'm about to start sort of a whole series of tweets and things about copper, really focused on copper at the moment and inviting some copper traders and copper miners on for some Twitter spaces assuming Twitter still exists. So if you're interested in copper, you should follow. That's where you can find us. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Trey. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.